This last week, if you ask any kid what happened last week, they would say it was Halloween, right? So while most of the world celebrated Halloween on October 31st, for the past 500 years, Protestants have celebrated October 31st, not as Halloween, but as Reformation Day. Reformation Day, the day that uh, Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg church door 95 theses, 95 uh, propositions for debate to reform the church that had become very corrupt in the Middle Ages. And um, that then led to the Protestant Reformation. Rather than the church reforming, they said, Luther, get out of here. And he led the Protestant Reformation. Now, I am one who believes that the Protestant Reformation rescued the gospel from heresy. And it is the most important historical event in history since the first century when Christ came and established the church and we, uh, the apostles wrote the Bible. Other than that, I believe the most important event in history for the past 2,000 years was the Protestant Reformation. Now, I must admit that in the past 10 years, I have given Martin Luther more airtime than any other reformer. And um, what I want to do today, now most churches celebrated Reformation Sunday last Sunday. We're going to celebrate Reformation Sunday today. And um, what I want to do is kind of broaden our understanding of the Reformation and not focus on Martin Luther today. He'll get mentioned. But another reformer by the name of William Tyndale. All right. So before we go there, let me read a scripture. Now, I'm not going to preach on this scripture, but this scripture relates. Um, it is the last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he died. He's in prison. He's writing to Timothy. And this is very similar to a letter that Tyndale writes from prison. All right. Second Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. 
Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. And then look at this. This is sad. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at, Tro- at Troas. I'm cold. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. So just remember, his passion to preach the word, his call to endure suffering, he's cold in prison, bring me a coat and the books because I'm still a scholar and I still want to study the word of God. So keep that in mind and uh, we want to take a look at the life and death of William Tyndale. Now, um, I must confess, I am not a historian. Um, now, have I ever mentioned a fellow by the name of John Piper? Okay. <laughs> Piper has, he has a, a conference every year, and at his conference, he actually um, brings in a guest speaker, but Piper does one session, and what he does every time is he does a biographical study of somebody from church history. And then, after three years, they compile his session into a book with three little biographies of three people from church history. So he has a whole series of books um, of, of church, people from church history. And uh, recently, this one was just published, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. Um, and here, one of the people he talks about is William Tyndale. I don't have the book yet. I actually downloaded his speech that he gave uh, during uh, his, his conference. And I, I tell you that just to, to let you know, most of the source material comes from Piper, who also claims not to be a church historian, but at least he takes a biography a year, reads it, teaches on it, passes it on to the, the church at large. So I'm getting most of the material from here. I think as a pastor, I need to let you know my sources um, so you don't think I'm smart. Okay? So, Um, How do you teach history without giving a bunch of dates? You will be quizzed on the dates after. No, you won't won't be quizzed on the dates. But I think you kind of need to know uh, the timelines for this to make sense. So um, let's go all the way back to the year 400 A.D. That is when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. Okay. Um, prior to that, there were Hebrew manuscripts that made up the Old Testament. There were Greek manuscripts that made up the New Testament. Um, Jerome was the first one to take them all and translate the whole Bible into one language, and he translated it into Latin, about 400 A.D. For a thousand years then, the only translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible was the Latin Vulgate. Few people could understand it if they even had access to it. Now, the the term the Dark Ages refers um, uh, refers to the economic darkness and political darkness, but another reason it's called the Dark Ages is because people didn't have access to the Bible. 
They had the Bible in a version, a Latin version, but nobody could read Latin unless you went to school and studied Latin. So no wonder error could creep into the church. Nobody could compare the church practices with the Bible. So for a thousand years, all they have is the Latin Vulgate. All right? Then let's jump ahead to the late 1300s. This guy is John Wycliffe. Wycliffe uh, call, and his followers were called Lollards. That's a derogatory name. But he's an Englishman. And he uh, started to translate some Latin texts of the Bible into English. And they started circulating English versions, or at least manuscripts uh, or partial, uh, partial manuscripts of the Bible throughout England. All right? Now, uh, the church did not like that. And in 1401, Parliament passes the uh, De Heretico Cum Burdeno law on the burning of heretics. It made heresy punishable by being burned alive at the stake. And they had Bible translators in view. Right? Then, in 1408, the Constitutions of Oxford were passed. Let me tell you about that. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Ardell, Ardenell, I think it is, wrote this. It's a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation... The same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of scripture into English or any other tongue and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. So combine that decree with on the burning of heretics and now it became legal to go after anybody who even translated a verse of scripture from Latin into English. Um, there was a young man in Norwich who was burned for possessing not a Bible, but just the Lord's Prayer in English. Right. John Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, records that seven Lollards, seven followers of, of Wycliffe, were burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. They didn't, even, they didn't possess uh, Bibles or, or English translations, just they taught their kids, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and they were uh, burnt at the stake. All right? So that's the, the background. That's the, uh, the historical setting that uh, Tyndale was born into. So, 1515... William Tyndale is ordained as a priest. Right? Uh, three interesting years in a row here. Three interesting players. Tyndale becomes a priest in 1515. 1516, Erasmus publishes the Greek New Testament. So Erasmus, many scholars believe he was the smartest man on the planet at that time. He was the illegitimate son of a priest. And he gathered uh, the various Greek manuscripts of 
the New Testament and compiled them into one published Greek version of the New Testament. So now, you know, up to this point, if somebody wanted to translate the Bible or the New Testament into their own language, they, it had to go from Greek to Latin. They would take the Latin or the Vulgate and then translate it into their language. Now, Erasmus makes the Greek New Testament available, and the world changes. Because now, if you learn Greek, you can translate the Bible into your language. Right? Next year is when Martin Luther posts his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. A lot of things all coming together. A perfect storm of historical realities coming together right around 1515, 1516, 1517. So, Erasmus publishes the New Testament in Greek. Tyndale, very smart guy, starts studying it. And he begins teaching, and he gets into disputes with some of the other priests. He says, our church laws say this, but the Bible says this. And one priest uh, said, we're better to be without God's laws. We're better to be with the Pope's laws. And This is where uh, Tyndale's famous quote came in. I defy the Pope in all his laws. If God spare my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you priests. And that's when he really made it his life's passion to translate the Greek Bible into the English language and make it available to everybody. Right? That's what he wanted to do. Now, uh, in 1524, he wants to get official approval to do this. They say no. In fact, now he's a marked man, so he has to flee from England to Europe. And he uh, hangs out in Germany, which is where he begins his translation work. And he starts smuggling manuscripts, printed manuscripts of the Bible in bales of cloth on a ship back to England. He is a smuggler. He's a Bible smuggler for God, sending the English Bible back into England. This is an illegal operation. All right. Then in uh, 1531, Sir Thomas More. Now, does anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody? Sir Thomas More, All right? Name the play, A Man for All Seasons. If you've ever seen the movie, A Man for All Seasons. We'll talk about that uh, in just a minute. But Sir Thomas More begins writing against Tyndale. He is the church's official trekker-downer of heretics. And Tyndale is considered to be a heretic. Okay? Now, um, let me pause here and we'll, we'll, we'll draw up sides. On one side, we have Tyndale and Luther, who want to bring reform to the church. And they both have a passion to get the Bible into the common language. So Luther, uh, he translates the Bible into German, and Tyndale, he translates the Bible into 
English. So they're on one side. Erasmus and Moore are part of the church, and they hate these guys over here. So Moore and Erasmus are against Luther and Tyndale. Now, here is where Piper makes some interesting comments about the difference between Erasmus and Moore and Luther and Tyndale. Let me read what he says. He says, Erasmus has the appearance of reform in his writing uh, uh, the uh, Encaridion, which is a Latin word for the manual. He wrote a book called The Manual. He has the appearance of being a reformer. But something is missing. To walk from Erasmus to Tyndale is to move, to paraphrase Mark Twain, from a lightning bug to a lightning bolt. Okay? So to walk from Erasmus to Tyndale is to move from a lightning bug to a lightning bolt. Where Luther and Tyndale were blood earnest about the dreadful human condition, our sinful condition, in the salvation of Christ, Erasmus and Thomas More joked and bantered. While Luther published his 95 theses in 1517, Erasmus sent a copy of them to More along with a jocular letter, including witty satirical diatribes against abuses within the church, which both of them loved to make. So Luther... Uh, is dead earnest about wanting the church to reform, whereas Erasmus and Moore, they, they go, yeah, we know, there's abuses in the church, but ha, ha, ha. You know, they, they were more like uh, Comedy Central uh, than serious reformers. Okay? Now, Piper says this, I linger here with this difference between Tyndale and Erasmus because I'm trying to penetrate to how Tyndale accomplished what he did through translating the New Testament. Explosive reformation is what he accomplished in England. This was not the effect of Erasmus's highbrow, elitist, layered nuancing of Christ and church tradition. Erasmus and Thomas More may have satirized the monasteries and clerical abuse, but they were always playing games compared to Tyndale. It's ironic and sad that today, supposedly avant-garde Christian writers can strike this cool, evasive, imprecise, artistic, superficially reformist pose of Erasmus and call it postmodern and capture a generation of unwitting, historically naive, emergent people who don't know they're being duped by the same old verbal tactics used by the elitist humanist writers in the past generations. We saw them in in Athanasius' day, and we see them in Tyndale's day. Now, he says this. This massive dose of bondage to sin and deliverance by blood-bought sovereign grace is missing in Erasmus. This is why... There is an elitist lightness to his religion, just like there is so much uh, 
there is to so much of even in evangelicalism today. Hell and sin and atonement and sovereign grace were not weighty realities for him. But for Tyndale, they were everything. And in the middle of these great realities was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is why the Bible had to be translated, and ultimately this is why Tyndale was martyred. So you get the picture? Tyndale believed in hell. Tyndale believed that we are sinners who need a savior who need a savior who died on a cross. The others were brought up in the church. And yeah, there were abuses, but come on, this is just the way it is. You know, um, today, there's the major division between those who hold to orthodox truth and those who are just playing church, the liberals and those who don't teach justification by faith alone. But then I want to point out that even within those who believe in orthodox truth, There are those who take it with dead earnestness. There are those who believe that you need Jesus Christ or you're going to hell. He really died on the cross to pay for your sins, and there is no greater need. Here we are, a few days before an election. That's important. Not half as important as you trusting in Christ for your eternal salvation, or you will go to hell. Now, there are those who believe that that's true, But the way they write, the way they preach, the way they teach, it's like, oh, come on. There are more important things than to get all passionate about that. We've got the bear game. We've got the election. We've got to go out to eat. We've got important things. And yeah, you need to know some some Christian truth. Let's sprinkle that on. And I think that's what Piper's pointing out here. Erasmus was a reformer but not reformer enough to actually split away and do anything about it. Luther and Tyndale were willing to split and to die for the truth. Now, you go, but you know what? We need kind of a, uh, we need to be a little more suave today. We're not going to reach people if we pound the pulpit and sweat and talk about hell. And I would just say, where does Jesus fit? Where do the great biblical reformers fit? For example, here is John the Baptist. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Is that suave and nuanced? No. It's crass. The wrath of God is coming. Flee. Oh, that's so... And, and, you know, the elitist of his day came out and mocked John the Baptist. Is Jesus suave and nuanced and cool and sarcastic? No, he says things like, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. What a gross, crude picture. Why should you do that? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Oh, talking about hell like that? Come on. Today it's cool to question hell. And even if there is a hell, isn't there a second chance for people to get out of hell? And, you know, let's not focus on this eternal thing. What matters is the here and now. This is so crude. 
And then he says to, to the nuanced, layered, sophisticated uh, clergy of his day, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Just because a church does evangelism and is in the church growth doesn't mean they're right on. Because they can end up making people sons of hell. All right? So, um, I think Piper's point is this. Don't be fooled by the nuanced, avant-garde, uh, trendy, politically correct, savvy, savvy writers and preachers. Are, is that what you're after? Or do you want an explosive reformer who's willing to sometimes even be crude and tell you the truth to wake you up to the peril of eternal damnation? Right. Now, um, that was primarily directed toward Erasmus. Now, let's talk a little bit about Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More, he uh, has a movie about him. There was a Broadway play called A Man for All Seasons. It also was turned into a movie, winner of six Academy Awards, Best Picture Academy Award. Right? It's about Thomas More. Now, he was a loyal defender of the Pope and Roman Catholicism in England. Now, during the time of the Reformation, England remained loyal to Rome until King Henry VIII came along. King Henry could not have a male child with his wife, Catherine of Aragon. So he said, I'm going to divorce her and marry Anne Boleyn. I just need a divorce from the Pope. The Pope said no. So Henry did what any self-respecting, egomaniacal, non-God-fearing king would do. He started his own church. Right? He declared himself the leader of the Church of England. Now, uh, as head of the church, he granted himself a divorce. And then married the woman he wanted. That didn't work out, so he chopped her head off, and uh, you know he had many, many wives. Right? But this first marriage, he wanted the support of the yes-men around him. And one guy wouldn't give him support. Sir Thomas More. Right? In fact, uh, they try to intimidate him, and then he's arrested. He's put in the tower, in the prison, and he just says no, no, no. And finally the movie ends with him having his head chopped off. Now, you go, what a great guy. Uh, Thomas More, he is a man for all seasons. We need more people like Thomas More willing to take a stand. Well, there's a difference between a principled man and a wide-eyed fanatic. Right? Thomas More was just a loyal, loyalist to the tradition of Rome. And anybody who deviated from the official church position, he went after. Now, when William Tyndale published the Bible, More 
criticized his version of the Bible. And it boiled down to five words that he didn't like. First of all, um, he didn't like the fact that Tyndale translated the word presbyteros as elder instead of priest. For example, here in Titus, Paul writes to Titus and said, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone's above reproach, a husband of one wife, his children are believers, not up. So he gives a bunch of qualifications for what an elder is. So we have elders here at Valleybrook. They, they're not priests. They're not, they don't even have to go to seminary. What's an elder? An elder is a, a man who, in essence, ha, uh, is one of the pastors, the co-pastor of the church. All right? We have four of them. Who, their qualifications are a bunch of character qualifications, and they need to know doctrine. But it's, it can be lay people. And um, Tyndale translates the word presbyteros as elder. In the Vulgate, it was translated priest. Now, why didn't more like this? Because it exposed a huge truth about Roman Catholicism. There's no priests in the New Testament. The whole priesthood is a sham. And translate the word properly, and it exposes the sham. I didn't go over with the boys at the home office. Second thing that Moore didn't like about Tyndale's translation, he translated ecclesia as congregation instead of church. So, for example, Matthew 18, remember we talked about the church discipline process. If one person sins, you go confront them personally. If they don't repent, you bring somebody else along. If they still don't repent, tell it to, uh, tell it to the, eventually you tell it to the church. If he refuses, listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, um, back then, the word church brought to mind this big bureaucracy Pope at the top, cardinals, and there was all this official administration, and you needed uh, the blessing uh, or the condemnation of the bureaucracy. Tyndall said, fooey on that. I'm going to translate this not as church because that word church brings to mind all that gobbledygook. I'm going to just use the word congregation. And by the way, it just means the gathering of the people. Okay? So Moore didn't like that because it brought into question the whole monstrosity that had developed over time. And uh, Tyndale was just trying to, to bring it back to ordinary people. The church is ordinary people, not the hierarchy. Then Tyndale translated the word metanoio as repent instead of do penance. In fact, the Latin Vulgate mistranslated it also. When, when the Bible calls us to repent, the Latin Vulgate translated as do penance. So there's the idea of a sacrament where you, you need to, um, yes, feel sorry, but then you also have to pray prayers and do all these things to have your sins forgiven. And the word doesn't mean do penance. It's a word that means a change of mind or a change of heart. 
So, um, for example, Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is something you can do right in your chair. You turn from your sin and you trust in Christ. But to, to bring in the word do penance, it's this whole sacramental system of conf- going to confession and, and uh, being given prayers to say and sometimes other deeds to do. It brought works into the gospel. And Tyndale says you're saved by faith alone, a repentant faith, not by works. Right? Two more. Um, he translated... Ex, uh, exo malago, malagio, as acknowledge or admit instead of confess. Now, here in our modern uh, translation, James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, um, the word confess, though, back then brought in this whole system of going into the booth, the dark booth, and Confessing your sin to the priest, and then he uh, gives you the penance. And that whole sacramental thing was tied up in that word. So Tyndale translated it admit instead of confess, and Moore didn't like that. I once heard R.C. Sproul talk about this. He said, you know, there is nothing wrong with confessing your sin, for example, to a priest, but to be biblical, he should turn around and confess his sins to you, because it says confess your sins to one another. Um, But it's not wrong to confess your sins. What's wrong is to say, now on top of that, here's a bunch of prayers you need to say as penance. That whole sacramental thing is brought in. Okay. Then one more. He translated agape as love rather than charity. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Tyndale translated it as, uh, if I have not love, whereas the Vulgate had charity. Um, and, and it's the idea, again, of if I, uh, if I have faith and I can speak in tongues, but I don't do deeds of charity. Again, bringing works into the gospel. And Tyndale wanted the purity of it being, you're saved by faith alone. Truly, faith in Christ will change your heart. You will have love for God, love for one another. And yes, that will show up, but the emphasis is on the heart, not on the deeds. So these are the five criticisms that uh, Thomas More had about uh, his translation. Now, what did he do about it? Well, let's talk about John Firth. This was Tyndale's closest friend. He was arrested in London, tried by Thomas More, and burned alive on July 4th, 1531, at the age of 28. Richard Bayfield, he's the one who ran the ships that brought the smuggled Bibles into England. He was betrayed arrested by Thomas More, and then uh, this is what More wrote. The monk and apostate was well and worthily burned in Smithfield. Then there was John Tweaksbury. Tweaksbury was converted by reading one of Tyndale's books. He was whipped in Thomas More's garden 
and had his brow squeezed with small ropes till blood came out of his eyes. Then he was sent to the tower where he was racked until he was lame. Then at last they burned him alive. Thomas More rejoiced. Uh, Thomas More rejoiced that his victim was now in hell where Tyndale is likely to find him when they come together. So, man for all seasons. Wow. Uh, James Bainham was burned at the stake. He stood up in a mass in London once and held up Tyndale's Bible and begged people to read it well. Sealed his fate, and he was burned at the stake. So was Thomas Blaney, uh, Thomas Dusgate, John Bent, Thomas Harding, Andrew Hewitt, Elizabeth Barton. Um, these are all people who were burned at the stake for supporting the translation of the Bible into English. Well, finally... Um, Tyndale, who never went back to England, was betrayed and um, captured and put into prison. And in prison, he wrote a defense of his position. And it all boiled down to him basically believing in justification by faith alone, the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and... And the good news, which is what the church wasn't teaching, that you're justified by faith alone. Not by faith plus all these sacraments and works. You're justified by faith alone. It boiled down to that. Now, I read Paul's letter to Timothy to begin. This is the last letter that Tyndale wrote from prison. He says, I beg your lordship and that of... So he's he's basically writing to the warden. I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that... If I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary, who is another official, to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual kachura, runny nose, which is much increased in this cell, a warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. He was never released. He was brought to the stake, strangled, and burned. So, application. 
You realize what went into this, that you can have an English Bible? Do you read it? In fact, picture this scenario. You die and go to heaven. And William Tyndale says, Did you read it? I died so you could have an English Bible. And you say, oh, oh yeah, I have many versions. I have an ESV and uh, NIV and New King Jimmy and Old King Jimmy. Yeah, I have lots of versions. No, no, no. But did you read it? Did you study it? Did you love it? Oh, I brought it with me to church. No, no, no. Did you read it? Brought it to Bible study. I even put, uh, underlined whenever who was teaching, I underlined it. Did you read it? They were willing to die to get the English Bible into your hands. Oh, we're so lazy. We're so lazy today. So distracted by so many versions, by so many TV shows, by so many things that don't matter. Second challenge. They were willing to die. They were willing to suffer. Tyndale suffered exile. He was a fugitive the rest of his life. He went to prison and he went to the stake. And we get upset if the temperature is not perfect in a church service or if the sermon goes a little long. The things they were willing to suffer for versus the things we're not willing to suffer for. But then finally, it all boiled down to this. The English Bible pulled the blinders off and exposed the heresy that was being preached. The gospel is not Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, and you might get in if you do a bunch of sacraments. That's not the gospel. That'll end you up in hell. The good news is Jesus died on the cross. He paid the full price. Trust him. And you will be saved. Huge difference between he did his part and I better do my part versus he paid the full price. There's nothing I can do but fall into his arms and trust in him. The one is horrible news. The other is glorious good news. Are you trusting him for your salvation?